we can think of this as a friendly discussion rather than a debate. At least I prefer to think of it that way. It's harder to lose a friendly discussion than it is to <laughs> lose a debate. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the badness of death and the value of life, which we both agree are pretty closely connected. I'm going to begin with some introductory remarks in which I describe a position that I have held and that John has criticized. I'll explain John's objection and uh, provide a short response to that. All this will be by way of kind of background to the subsequent discussion. Um, at a, at pretty much at the end of my remarks, what we've discovered is that we're, we're more or less in agreement at that point. Um, and then comes John's new views, um, which he's got up here on a computer screen, so I'm very distracted. I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm seeing here the... the uh, on that no, okay, good. All right, so I won't, won't be tempted to try to uh, get a preview of the, of the true theory, which is coming further down the screen. Um, in his book, Weighing Lives, John defends uh, an account of the badness of death according to which the way one determines how bad death is for someone is just to compare the life that that person has, given that he dies when he dies, with the life he would have had had he not died when he did and gone on living until some other cause of death operated. And you compare those two lives and you see the extent to which the longer life is better than the shorter life, and that gives you a measure of the badness of death for the person. I call that uh, the life comparative account of the badness of death. Um, according to this life comparative account, there's really only one factor that determines uh, how bad death is, and, and that is just the net amount of good that a person's life would have contained had he not died. Now, I've proposed uh, a different account according to which there are two factors that are relevant. One is uh, the one that John focuses on, the amount of good life that a person loses uh, by dying. But the other factor is the extent to which the person at the time of death or the individual at the time of death would have been related to himself in the relevant ways um, at those times later in life when the goods of his life would have occurred. And for purposes of discussion today, I'm just going to assume that the relevant way is through um, certain time-spanning uh, psychological relations. We can call it psychological continuity, psychological connectedness, something of that sort, whatever. Um, and my, my view is that the badness of the loss of the future good for the individual at the time of death ought to be discounted for weakness in the relevant psychological relations between the individual at the time of death and the individual later, as he would have been later in life. There are a couple of things that led me to adopt the view that I have defended. One is, uh, of course, Derek Parfit's uh, revolutionary idea that identity is not what matters, that identity is not the basis of uh, rational concern or egoistic concern about the future. Um, and my, my view just takes that idea and, and builds on that. Um, one might have different views about what the relevant relations are. My, my own view is roughly that uh, the relations that matter are those relations that are <clears throat> constitutive of identity in the normal case. Uh, but there can be disagreement about that. The other thing that motivated me to take this view about the badness of death is that it seems to imply that the worst death that an individual can suffer is one that occurs immediately after that individual begins to exist. So you think about... Um, what we are like when we begin to exist on almost any theory or any account of when it is we begin to exist. We are either non-conscious or have only a very rudimentary form of consciousness at the point at which we begin to exist. So suppose you think, as most people do, that we begin to exist at conception, then if you believe that and you also accept a life comparative account of the badness of death, 
what you'll have to say is the worst and most tragic death is a death that occurs immediately after conception. If that's what you believe, um, then you ought, I think, to believe that um, we're wasting a lot of money on things like cancer research, which saves people's lives when they're much older, and, uh, and that what we really should be focusing social resources on is the prevention of early spontaneous abortion. That is actually how two-thirds of uh, human beings meet their end. They, they, they die uh, in utero. Uh, so about, I think it's roughly a little over 60% of human conceptions uh, uh, result in natural death prior to birth. Uh, and that's a vast number of, uh, of deaths. Uh, you'd also have to think that uh, you know, the, the, the death of a fetus is much worse than the death of a 20-year-old. Um, you might also have to believe something like this. Again, this is on the assumption that we begin to ex exist at conception. Um, if you have a different view about when we begin to exist, you can modify what I'm saying to fit that view. I think the results are pretty counterintuitive in all such cases. Um, if you believe that we begin to exist in conception, then what you might think if you take the common sense view about the importance of causing new people to exist, you would think that um, when a sperm cell fails to fertilize an egg cell, nothing bad has happened at all. But then if you combine the life comparative view with the view that we begin to exist at conception, you would also have to think that once the sperm has penetrated the uh, outer part of the egg and distributed some chromosomes within the egg and then the, the resulting zygote immediately dies, one of the greatest possible tragedies has occurred. Whereas nothing bad would have happened at all had the sperm not entered the, the uh, egg. Um, but it seems to me that um, these two types of event, that is, failure of a conception to occur and the death of an, uh, a zygote immediately after conception, are morally indistinguishable. They are evaluatively indistinguishable. There is one formal difference that you might think is important, and that is that if you think we begin to exist at conception, then it will be true that the death of the in the case of the death of the zygote, there will be a victim of the loss, uh, whereas that's not true in the case in which someone just fails ever to come into existence. I think in this kind of case, though, that, that difference, which may seem to be important, is actually not important at all, and that that should be intuitively fairly compelling. I concede that um, if we actually came into existence in a different way, if we came into existence uh, the way Athena did, uh, springing uh, full, fully developed from the head of Zeus, so we were self-conscious and rational and autonomous and equipped with an with a innate set of desires and dispositions and so on immediately after beginning to exist, then, then of course the, it would be quite different. Uh, on, on the view that uh, I defend. Uh, I was going to say something a little bit about the implications for the badness of death of the view, but I think I'll skip that in the interest of time to get to John's view. Um, in his book, Weighing Lives, John uh, presents uh, what I think of as a really comparatively minor objection to the view. He says it's incoherent. Um, <laughs> and I want to suggest that I think that's not right, and I think John now... well. Maybe he still, the objection that he's got, he agrees, it doesn't hit the target, um, but he's probably got other ones by now. Um, so we'll wait and see whether, whether he agrees in the end that it is even coherent. The example that uh, John uses to show that the view is incoherent is this. He, um, uh, the, the reason he says that it leads to incoherence is that it, uh, it, it requires that one act in a certain way at one time and then later act to undo what one has done earlier. The uh, example he uses to illustrate this uh, problem is this. He says, suppose that there's uh, a newborn infant and a young adult, both of whom have a disease that will kill them 30 years in the future, leaves them okay for the next 30 years. Uh, but there are resources to cure only one of these two individuals, the, the infant or the young adult. And what he says is that my time-relative interest account of the badness of death that I've just described for you um, implies that 
one should save the adult, one should give the life-saving resource to the adult rather than to the infant because the adult now has a strong uh, interest in what will happen to him in 30 years' time, whereas the infant, being psychologically quite strongly disconnected from himself in the future, has only a very weak time-relative interest in what will happen to him 30 years hence. So we should save the adult. But 30 years later, when they're when um, the, the, the disease culminates in each case, uh, John says the time-relative interest account reverses its recommendation. I should try to undo what I did earlier and save the individual who's now 30 years old rather than the individual who's much older, and that's because they may both be equally psychologically related to themselves in the future, but we can imagine that the, the, the older person now has fewer goods to... Uh, look forward to, or to fewer goods in prospect in the future. And so the view recommends one thing at one time and the opposite thing at a later time. Now, uh, I think that the, the view as I uh, thought of it doesn't actually have that implication. And one way to explain how it doesn't have that implication is to consider what the view implies in the case of abortion and what it applies in the, in, implies in the case of prenatal injury. In the case of abortion, I claim that a fetus has only a very weak time relative interest in continuing to live, to have the goods of its future life, because it's so psychologically disconnected from itself in the future. Um, so only a comparatively weak time relative interest is frustrated if a fetus is allowed to die or is killed. On the other hand, imagine a case in which if I act in a certain way, it's going to uh, injure a fetus in a comparatively minor way but cause that individual to suffer from mild chronic pain the rest of her life. In that case, it seems to me that there is a strong objection to the infliction of the prenatal injury, and that's because there are going to be a great many interests, which we can think of as time relative in my sense, that are going to be frustrated by this one act of mine. In other words, this person is going to be in pain at many, many different times in the future. Uh, and at all of those times, she's going to have an interest in not being in pain, and that interest is going to have been frustrated by my action. So I think a similar thing uh, uh, applies to um, uh, John's case. The idea here is that, um, well, actually, I, I'm realizing now that what I wrote in my notes is actually in, incorrect, and John and I spoke about that a short while ago, so let me see if I can rephrase this now. Um, I think what John was assuming is that my view requires that a person be guided at the time of action by whatever interests exist at that time, and that's not the view. All the interests that will exist independently of one's present action uh, count and can constrain morally what one is permitted to do now. That's why in considering whether it's permissible to inflict an injury on a fetus, we have to take account of the further effects in the future of, of, of the injury and of the interests that that individual will have at that time that will be frustrated by my action. And those are interests that the individual will have completely independently of my present action. That's not true in the case of abortion. Uh, in John's case, if I act now to, say, to, to give the treatment to the infant rather than to the young adult, when the relevant interests arise, namely 30 years hence, um, we've already conceded that at that time, the individual who's now an infant will have a stronger time relative interest in continuing to live than the individual who's a young adult now will have at that later time. So if we put aside considerations of respect for persons, um, considerations of fairness, other things like that, and consider only interests, my view actually implies that the right thing to do now is to give the treatment to the individual who is now an infant rather than to the other. Now, that's, that's most of what I want to say uh, in defense of the view. Thinking about it again in the light of John's comments um, did um, uh, elicit a, a, a number of uncomfortable thoughts uh, in me about the view. Um, I'll perhaps 
conclude just by saying this, that um, the view that I have just articulated and defended against this one objection does imply that if I were to save the life of a fetus or a newborn infant, the benefit I would be bestowing needs to be discounted. Because I'm certainly saying that the harm that I would be preventing is a, is a minor harm, therefore it seems that I've got to say that the benefit that I would be providing is a comparatively minor benefit, even though it's the whole of a human life for a particular individual. And what I want to say about that is that I think that the, the view that I'm defending here just says, as I suggested earlier, that saving the life of an individual immediately after that individual begins to exist is morally on a par with causing a person to exist. So a lot here, you know, what you want to think about the implications of this view, um, a lot depends on what you think about what reasons we might have to cause people to exist whose lives would be worth living. Now, I actually think that when we cause people to exist whose lives would be worth living, we are bestowing on those individuals a kind of benefit. It's a, I think of it as a non-comparative benefit in the sense that what one is doing is good for that individual. I call it non-comparative because I don't think that that's better for that individual than the alternative, which was would have been never to have existed at all. Um, I myself think that we do have reasons to bestow these uh, non-comparative benefits by causing people to exist, but I don't really have a developed view about how strong those reasons are and how they weigh against um, the reasons that we have to bestow ordinary benefits which are um, comparatively good for or better for people. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that there, that, that there is this connection between my view and beliefs that we might have about causing people to exist. Well, um, uh, Jeff's explained um, what uh, intuitions or views led him to the theory that you developed the time relative uh, interest account. Um, I'm um, also going to talk about those intuitions. I'll particularly be talking about the intuition that it isn't so bad if a young creature dies, a baby or a fetus, um, as it would be if, an, um, say, a young adult uh, was to die. And I'll talk about the explanation of that. Jeff's theory um, provides uh, one. Um, and I have to say right at the beginning uh, that I misunderstood it. Um, I'm sorry about that. I've already apologized to, to Jeff. Um, I misread his theory in the book. I could think of some excuses, but I, that's no point in, in doing that. Um, it was a mistake, so I'm sorry for that. And that meant that the objection that I gave to his theory, which was a fine objection to the theory that I thought it was, actually wasn't an objection to uh, Jeff's theory. Um, uh, I thought it was um, his theory made um, what you ought to do at a time relative to the interests that prevailed at that time. And as he said just now, that isn't what he thought. Um, uh, theories which make um, this what you ought to do relative to the time I think are inevitably going to lead to incoherence because what you ought to do now may well turn out to be something that you ought to undo later. That was the, the objection, but it just simply doesn't apply to, uh, to Jeff's theory. So now I have to give a different interpretation, and it's still an interpretation, and I was asking Jeff about it at lunch, and I'm not sure that um, I've got it right, but I'm going to assume that it's right, and he can later uh, tell me um, it isn't. Um, it's, a, it's a theory, actually, that I once proposed myself, although only in a, in a hesitant way, and I and then rejected it. So this is actually what's coming out is a theory of mine, and I think it's the same as Jeff's, and it would be up to him to tell, to, to tell us whether, whether it is. And I'm going to, do the, I'm going to draw pictures, because... Um, I just like to frame things in, in a particular way, and this may be a little bit unfair because they're not quite the way that Jeff frames things. But I'm going to talk about um, choices. I'm going to suppose that you're faced with some choices, different things that you might do, and suppose that 
the decision you want to make is going to be determined or at least partly determined by the values of the alternatives that, that face you. So one of the things we've got to do is set values on the alternative lives that are made available um, by, your, by your choices. So let's think about a choice that involves either saving the life of a person or not. You've got some resources, you could save her life, or alternatively you could use those resources in some other way. And let's think about how we should evaluate those, um, those alternatives um, when we're thinking about this person only. There may be other people involved, but we'll just concentrate on this person and think how we should evaluate them from the point of view of, of this person's life. So I'm going to draw some pictures of lives, pictures that I, that I like to draw. Um, lives go on for a time, so that's time in that direction. And during the course of that time, they vary in their quality. They, sometimes you have good times, sometimes you have bad times. That's to say what I call your temporal well-being, how, how well life is going at a time varies uh, over your life. So in this diagram, let's suppose you get created here. Uh, and then it goes sort of, this is where your life might go. Uh, this horizontal line here is the level of temporal well-being, which is such that it's, it's what I call the neutral uh, level of well-being for continuing life. Um, it's the level such that if your life was going at a particular time at that level, extending your life at that level is equally as good as not extending it. So this is, an, is a level that's neutral in the sense that if it's added on at the end, a period of life is added on at the end of it, which is at this level, it's neither good nor bad. It's equally good for you uh, to have it. Um, anything above this line adds to the goodness of your life. Anything below this line subtracts from the goodness of your life. So if this is your life, the total goodness of it is the area underneath this curve here. It's a this is a positive bit of the area where your life is going well. Here is a negative bit where it's going badly. Now, that's, that's, I think of this as a sort of default theory about the goodness of a life. It can be adjusted, and the precise details of it uh, don't matter. What does matter is the idea that the goodness of a life is in some way composed of how it goes during uh, the times in it. So there's a picture of a life. Now, suppose there is some choice available which involves this particular person losing her life at, uh, at some time. So let's say that this is a picture of how her life would go if something bad doesn't happen, but if something bad does happen, it gets choked off at some point here, should we say. So now what's the good of continuing the life? Well, it's the uh, area above the line in the rest of life that she would have had um, had she not died uh, at that point. So the she, in fact, there is a choice of two lives for her. There's a short one, which goes, I'm just trying to copy this, like that. And there's a longer one that goes like that. And um, the uh, question is, how do we evaluate? How do we, what basis of value should go into deciding what the choice is? And this is a matter of how we evaluate these two lives against each other. What we're interested in, in fact, is which of these lives is uh, better than another. Now, I think I'm going to now going to describe Jeff's view about that. Um, but I'm not quite sure that this is his view, but I'm going to assume it is for a moment. I think that what Jeff thinks is that when you're evaluating short and long lives like this, how you should make the comparison is by taking the well-being that the person has while she's alive in both of the alternatives, that's to say while death is not in question, and give that full weight in your evaluation. So count these areas fully, and also count the period of life beyond the time when the death might happen, but discount that for the degree of connectedness, psychological connectedness, between the person when she's, a, when she's alive in both of the options and the time that we're talking about. So you take this area, but you discount it in some way. You give less weight uh, to this, probably in a sort of diminishing way. So the effect would be just to collapse 
collapse this down towards in the valuation collapse this down towards the axis so that's the sort of value that you would uh, you would put in because of diminishing weight that's the theory now Jeff's got some time to think about whether that really is his theory or not at any rate this is the theory that, that I, I was attracted by at one time now what that's doing is taking account of the fact that um, uh, a person at any time need not be particularly well connected with the, the rest of her life this is going to be important when we're thinking about lives that um, end rather soon or might end rather soon after they begin because if it's an, uh, an infant we think that her life is not well the rest of her life is not psychologically connect, well connected with how she is at the moment which means that the discounting would be rather large but, it, but there will also be some discounting for um, deaths that occur uh, later because at any time of life you're not completely well connected with the rest of your life now I wonder if that is, is the, the, uh, the theory um, let, let me assume that it is uh, now now I'm sorry to say it's incoherent um, but for a different reason now and the reason is that um, what it does is make the value you attach to different lives depend on the choice that you're making so the value you're attaching to this part of this person's life when you're making this comparison depends on the fact that this is a, a time when potentially she dies what we're doing is looking at um, the value of the life taking on board that there's a potential that she dies at this time and that is a feature of um, the alternative that's before us uh, and it's, it's that that's um, going to lead to problems if you, any of you are familiar with this sort of thing you, you can see this is going to lead to intransitivities in your judgments of betterness and I'll illustrate that by um, a, a simple example. So instead of dealing with a whole complicated life that goes up and down, let me just deal with lives that come in two bits. Um, there's some temporal well-being in the first bit, there's some temporal well-being in uh, the second bit, um, and uh, I want to compare various different possible lives, including one which is chopped off and never has the second bit, so including, that's to say, a death that comes early. And I just put numbers... Um, because it's easiest to do it this way. So we'll start by comparing a, a longer life which, with a person uh, that a person might have, which starts in the first half with level one, and in the second half goes on to level six. So this is a description of one two-period uh, uh, life temporal well-being of one and then a temporal well-being of six and let's start by comparing that with a life where she dies younger this one she has well-being of five in the first part but then then dies now remember what we've got to do in a comparison like this what we do is we give the part where she's alive in both full weight but the part where she's not in alive in both we discount according to the connectedness psychological connectedness between that part and the part when she's alive. So let's discount this by a half, say. So let's suppose that the discount, uh, the, the factor of connectedness is a half. She's only half um, connected to the rest of her life. So what's the value of this? Well, it's five. And what's the value of this? It's one plus half of that. Uh, so it's four. One plus half of six, so that's four. So that's the value of the two lives. Now let's put in a, 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 a sorry, the, the, the value of the two lives when you're comparing them. So you arrive at the conclusion that this life is better than this life. Now I'm going to put in uh, a third life, five and then one, and let's now compare the value of this life with this life. Now in this comparison, there is no early death in question. In both of the alternatives, she's alive both for the, the same amount of time, so there's no issue of discounting. Remember that what you're supposed to do is discount anything that comes to the person after the time when she might have died. But in this case, she's living the same amount of time in both cases. So we should give the whole of her life full value in this calculation. So we get seven there in this comparison. This is one comparison. Seven and six. 
So this one is better than that one. Now I'm going to compare this one directly with this one. And there is, these are two lives of different lays, so we apply the rule which involves discounting. We see that in the first part of her life, things are equally good, but she does get something good in the second part of her life if she survives. We'll give this a value of a half, so here we get, uh, in this comparison, we get five and a half and five. So we conclude that this one's better than that one. So we've got a cycle in betterness. And that's incoherent. So that's the argument uh, against that. This, this um, valuations that are relative to the choice that is available to you are always going to be subject to this sort of a problem. Once you know how, you can always create cycles uh, of this sort. So um, I, I think that a theory which makes a value depend on the choice available, which if, as Jeff does, as I understand it, is not going to work. And now I'm going to give you an alternative. This probably isn't going to work either. I only thought of it yesterday, but at the moment I think it's quite good. Um, so let's go back to the intuition that Jeff's wanting to explain. Um, the intuition is that um, keeping alive uh, an infant is not as good as keeping alive a, uh, a, a young adult, say. And it's something to do with the connection between the infant and the rest of her life. Um, that intuition is also connected with uh, uh, another uh, one, intuitively uh, related. Um, and that is that if you've got some well-being to give, well-being to distribute, as you might say, it's always better to use that well-being and add it onto a life that you've already got, rather than create a new person and give her that well-being. So that there is more to be said for improving the life of a person that there already is, than there is to be said for having a new person who will have uh, a life of a particular quality. We, are, we much prefer making things better for people we've got than for uh, creating people. The, the um, uh, very nice words of Jan Narveson, um reflect that. Uh, Narveson says, um, we value, I think it is, we like, we want uh, to make people happy, but we don't want to make happy people. We're much more interested in making happy the people we've got than making people who will uh, be happy. Many of us intuitively go further than that. We think there's actually nothing to be said at all for creating a person whose life will be, will be good. The, the, our intuition of those people is that it's neither good nor bad. It's neutral, eth ethically neutral to create a new person, however good her life will be. That's what I call the intuition of, of uh, uh, neutrality. Um, but um, that one I, I happen to know is wrong. Um, that one, although it's strongly held, remember that not all intuitions that you hold strongly are necessarily correct. That one itself cannot be fitted into a coherent theory of value. So the intuition of neutrality, I think, has to go. But the other one, the, one, the weaker one that I described first, which is that adding good to the life of a person is better than creating a new person to have good, I think that intuition can survive in a coherent theory. Um, and... Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to support that and explain what the theory is that does it. And that intuition is itself closely related, as Jeff says, to the one that we started with, which is that keeping alive an infant is not so good as keeping alive somebody who's already 20, 20 years old. Because um, keeping alive an infant is not that different from creating a person. In fact, I did write down a quote. Yes, here is something I got from Jeff's book. The death of an infant is relatively intermediate, relevantly, sorry, intermediate between, computer's gone off, um, uh, oh, here it comes, between non-conception and the death of a person. So saving the life of somebody who's really very young is a bit like creating a person, is what he says. And I think that is the source of this intuition. Um, it, it, it goes very well with the intuition that creating a person is not in itself as, as good as uh, improving the life of a person that we've got. So now I'm going to give you that theory. Um, uh, so what I have to, to do this, I have first of all to start with, a, with a, a theory that assumes creation is instantaneous. I'm going to vary that in a moment. But if we can start with the idea that creation is instantaneous, 
um, and then then I'll, I'll change it. That will allow me to uh, to present the theory that I want. Um, so I'm going to go back to where I was to begin with. So the idea is that the, I, what I'm doing now is drawing drawing a life, and I've already said that what we might call the default theory for the value of the life is the area that's underneath this graph shows how well it goes uh, during the time. And let's suppose that this works for all lives. You know, whatever life you draw, um, you can get this uh, value of it um, by doing that integration under the curve of any length. So let me make these a different length. That's the default theory that I'm going to, going to stick to. I'm not going to argue for that. If you want to compare these two lives together, what you do is take the area under this and the area under that, see which one is uh, greater, and that's the better life. So there's a theory for the value of all sorts of lives. Um, it's, it's a theory for any life. It tells you how good it is. But remember, I said that we need to think about also the possibility of not creating a person because I said that we sometimes think we need to compare improving the life of a person we've already got with creating a person. So we need to think about um, what value we should attach to not having a person at all. What I've got here in this, this picture is some lives that exist, people we've got, and I've said something about the value of those lives. But I want to make that value in some way comparable with another alternative, something which is possible for any, any person, that that person never gets to exist at all. So I've, these measures here will tell you the values of lives relative to each other. But I want to talk about not just the value of lives relative to each other, but I also want to put on the same scale of value, I want to be able to take account of the possibility that this person might never exist. So I want to uh, consider, as well as the value of these lives, I want to consider the value of her non-existence uh, at all. So how am I going to do that? Well, what I'm going to do is define a zero for my scale of goodness of lives um, in such a way that it's the same as how good it would be for this person not to exist at all. How good it would be, I should say, if this person doesn't exist at all. So I want to put that in. And I want to do it in a way that captures the intuition that I described. Now, this seems a little bit odd, but in fact, this works quite well. And this is a standard theory of value. In order to get that to work, we have to... Um, put a pulse of badness in at the beginning of each of these lives. Remember that this picture tells you how you compare lives com relative to each other, but it doesn't give you anything like an absolute value of life. It's just allowing you to compare them with, e with each other. And the absolute value that I want to put into this picture is not having the person at all. How do I do that? Well, I put in a lot of badness right at the moment of, of, crea of creation. It's, a, it's a, got no width here, so this is just a, a, an infinitely long line, which is, which is an amount of badness, some particular amount of badness. So when you get born, you have a sort of debt. You know, you've got to live for a while before your existence becomes worthwhile, because as you live, you, you gain some goodness, and at some point, when maybe you get to your young adulthood or something like that, then your having lived is as good as your never having... Um, uh, lived um, at all. So you get born with a debt in this theory. This is called critical level utilitarianism, uh, if you like. So it, it, what it says is the way to evaluate the world is to look at the goodness of the lives of all the people we've got and for each of those subtract a particular level which is the uh, uh, um, which is often called the critical level and you can do that in this picture by just having a big debt at the beginning. So there's the critical level utilitarian story. Now the thing that I thought of yesterday. Now, the, the intuition that we're, that we're interested in derives from something sort of mushy around the beginning of life. Um, uh, Jeff describes it as lack of connection with the rest of life. And I suppose it is that. I prefer to think of it as beginning to exist being a gradual process. Um, I realise that there are metaphysical difficulties over gradual creation. 
Um, but it seems to me that those metaphysical differences are ones that the metaphysicians are better trying to overcome. Because it's pretty clear that creation is, in many cases, a gradual process. If you make a cake, there isn't an instant when the cake comes into existence. It takes you some while uh, to make a cake. If you're, if you're really worried about it, you could say, well, the organism is instantaneous, comes into existence at conception or something like that. But from it's gradual that she acquires the, the property of being a person, shall we say. But I, I'm quite happy for the moment to think about... Um, uh, creation being uh, a gradual process. Now that immediately shows you what you've got to do to, to get um, to get theory to work nicely. Um, we've just got to spread out this big dip, the, the, the instantaneous debt that you get when you become created. Spread it out over the period during which you in which you get created. So suppose. This is when you're finally, you finally reach full personhood or full existence or whatever it is. And we have a debt that we've got to subtract from your, the value of your life um, during this period. Um, to keep it simple, let's suppose you get, it, you get it sort of steadily over the period. So here is a negative thing that, uh, that comes in. Um, and it's got to be subtracted from the, from the rest of the value of life. That's going to do what we want. Because it does ensure that if you go out of existence very soon uh, after you're created, um, what you've got is debt, but you haven't managed to accumulate much positive stuff uh, at, at that time. So it does do what Jeff wants. It, in fact, treats a death at an early stage while creation is not yet complete, while you're in the course of, cre of, crea of being created as somewhere intermediate between not being created at all and having your life saved um, after, you're, after you're created. Um, but the nearer, uh, the nearer you get to full creation, the more of this uh, debt you accumulate. And if you finally you actually get to full creation, then you've got the whole of that negative, that negative um, blip uh, that's, that's in there. Now, this theory is run by, quite an, by some of the same intuitions as Jeff's is, but he doesn't have any of that relativity uh, in it. Um, any life, whatever you're comparing it with, we've, is it, we've got, a, got a, a value for any life, whatever you're comparing it with. Um, incidentally, in this picture, I've got you gaining something at the same time as you're getting your negative blip. So, you're, so I'm giving you credit while, you, while you're being created, if you like. Um, you might not want to do that, and that doesn't matter for what I'm saying. Um, the point is, your negative bit is, is acquired gradually uh, as you go through. Um, it, it, it's independent of what we're comparing it with. It's giving you a, a theory of what the value of a life is. It's a theory of the value of life, which is now comparable with the value of non-existence, and it takes account of the fact that creation is, um, <coughs> is gradual. And I think that's it. Okay, Julian has allowed me a, a very brief moment of uh, commentary. Um, actually, I don't fully understand the view that you sketched that you were wondering is um, whether it's, it's my view. I think there's a possibility that we're actually talking about different things. That is, you are producing a, a, a theory of value, and I am offering a theory of interests that supports an understanding of reasons. So I'm not really offering an account of um, the value of lives from the point of view of eternity. It's from some impartial point of view, looking at the comparison between Two, two lives. I actually think that if, we do, if we're doing that, John's theory is right. And in fact, in, in the section of weighing lives in which he discusses my view, he says, I don't actually deny his, the view, the life comparative account. And that is actually correct. And the, 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 the life comparative account is telling us something. It's telling us something important. And it is giving us an account of 
the values of lives looked at from the outside, as it were. Um, and I think that's what you're doing with the account that you say leads to intransitivities and so on. And I, I, I think I'm right in saying that that's not, exact, that's not what I'm offering in, in my time relative interest account. I'm offering an account of <coughs> the, how things matter to, how things about their futures matter to individuals at particular times. And that's and and my claim where we differ is my claim is that's what we should actually be guided by in our practical decision making when we're deciding um, what it's better or worse to do. I think what we should be looking at is the impact of our action on the time relative interests of the individuals at at different times. And you're saying no, we should be looking at the effect that our action will have on the life as a whole. So I'm inclined to say that. I don't hold the, the, the view that you put on the board because it's not, that's not the kind of view that I'm trying to articulate. Um, on your new view, um, let me just ask one, one question. I'm trying to understand it, and, and I don't share the intuitions that underlie critical level utilitarianism or critical level views generally, um, and I think maybe it's because of that that I don't understand the idea of the debt that you have when you come into existence. I, I just don't know what the, what, I don't see the rationale for that. Um, but let me just ask one question about the implication of the, of the view. So um, you've got somebody who comes into existence and they've got this debt and we have two possible deaths for this same individual. Um, both of those deaths occur before the debt is paid off. Um, one of the deaths comes earlier and another one of the deaths comes later. Uh, does your view imply that the earlier death is actually better mm -hmm. than the later? Yep, that's right. Yes, yeah, I, I, I just find that, yeah, see, I find that quite implausible if we are imagining that the that in the absence of this death, uh, debt, the life would be above the neutral level. And I don't see why we should, if, if in the absence of the debt, which seems to me some kind of theoretical construct, um, in, in the absence of that debt, if the life were from the beginning above the neutral level, uh, um, then I would think that the earlier death would be worse than the later death, but then that just means but I'm not a critical level that, utilitarian. But a death immediately after conception, should we say, it's neither here nor there. Well, it's not. It's not terribly bad. I mean, I do. I, I but now we're comparing that with a death, at, say, six months, um, and I'm saying that's worse than a death immediately after conception. Surely that would be okay by you. Um, that's because we've got more of a person. We've got nearer to the creation of the person after six months. So we're adding in something about the badness of losing a life, destroying a life. Whereas very early deaths are much more like non-conception than like killing. Mm -hmm. Okay, <coughs> yeah, I see that. So to, the, to, that, yeah, okay. to that extent our views actually do coincide. Okay. I mean, it, it depends where you think this is, you know. Is this when, is this birth, or is it maybe being five years old or something? And that, mm -hmm. obviously that's something we can dispute. Um, but I think if we were able to agree when, a, when we've got a person, a full person, then I think you probably would agree with that consequence of it. You know, a death just before you've got a full person is very close mm -hmm. to the death of a full person. But a death very early in the creative process is not nothing like as bad as that. Yeah. Um, there is there is still um, a, a disagreement, uh, and that is that I tend to think of to to, to make the following distinction. That is in when we have a choice that affects only the one person. It's, it's acceptable to be guided by the life comparative account. It's only when we're comparing um, 
only when we have to choose between what we do for one person and, and what we're going to do for another person that the time relative interest account um, should be deployed. So on my view, if life is worth living immediately after we become after we come into existence, then when we're thinking about we're thinking just about what's better or worse for this, the same individual, I do actually think that the earlier death is, is worse. Um, even though um, the time relative interest that is frustrated is weaker. But we haven't got an individual yet. Not, well, not if the individual is a person. We've got, a, we've got an organism. No, no, I'm saying whenever, whenever it is that we begin to exist. So oh, from the oh, point yeah, after, is, whenever we begin a, yeah, to exist. So after, after, some, after an individual begins to exist, um, it's worse for that individual. If, if, the, if the whole of the life is above the neutral level, it's worse for that individual uh, to die earlier than to die yeah, later. Well, it doesn't work for this person because she's having a negative life at this point. I see. But for that person, when she's got beyond this point, the longer her life is, the better yeah, it is no, for her. But now, what about... So I don't have this point. So I, oh, well, my, my listen, only you point You said after here. a person gets to exist. This is where the person, as a person, is fully exists. This one. And what do you mean by person? Oh, oh I see. This is the period this of indeterminacy. Period of I'm sorry. Of this is the period uh, where, where, where someone is coming into existence. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid I'm with the metaphysicians on that one. I don't know how to understand the notion of... Um, the, the, the well-being as it applies to a partially existing entity. The, I think things either exist or they don't exist and um, uh, they have a kind of determinate level of well-being at those times at which, at which they exist. Now, you might, what you might think is that um, there are different sortal notions that this individual satisfies at different times, and there may be an indeterminacy about which sortals apply to the individual at, at this given time. But I'm, I'm thinking that if you've got some developing thing, um, it's either me or it's not me, or it's indeterminate whether it's me, but I don't think it's a, a plausible idea to say, well, it's me partially existing. So I, th I think I would limit it to the three options there. I think we should open this up. So to we have until yeah. we started 15 minutes late, so we will go till quarter to four. But if people need to leave, please just leave. No, go, go so ahead. Uh, okay. do I we have I questions? Stand up. I got a bad knee. I think it helps to stand. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's just actually a question for Professor Bruce's new position that you put forward. I guess I just have uh, two questions. The first one is how would it interact with um, non-human animals, that, that is to say where they simply just not have the same debt that, that humans have when they're born. Um, and then I guess then the, maybe the follow-up concern if you answer that would be uh, the worry that if you had, say if you had a, some sort of science fiction scenario where you could only have people live for the first two years of their lives, a civilization where you're only living for the first two years of your life and you're never breaching personhood, um, but they're all happy and flourishing as much as you can as a toddler. Uh, that seems like a good thing overall, and whether or not this account can uh, accommodate that information. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure of the answer to the second one. Let's can we go back to the first one? Tell me what you think about animals. Do you think that um, if you had, say, a couple of years of life to give to sheep, um, it would be better to extend the life of a the sheep there already is, or to have a new sheep to live for two years? You see, I think we're pretty clear about this with people. It's better to extend the life of a person we've got rather than to, to, um, to have a new person. And that's the motivation for this critical level theory. Um, that's the idea of the debt. In order for it to be a good idea to create this person, it's not good enough for her just to have well-being from the time she starts. She's got to have enough well-being to make it worth creating her in the first place. Now, I don't know whether how it is with she. So that's it. That's tell me that, and then I'll know how to put it, put them into the theory. Yeah, I, I guess I also have the intuition that I'm not so sure about sheep coming. I mean, I, the, the worry
afterwards is that it seems that even if we don't, even if the even if the child never pays off the debt of not becoming a person, there still seems to be something good about that child's those two years of, of, of they have a, assuming it's above the. Uh, above oh yeah, line. yeah, of course. Um, There's something good about it. And so I, I was wondering whether or not it would be maybe an easier way to formulate it as instead of there being a, a debt incurred, that there is actually an increase in value that that's produced after a person becomes about, so that there's a that you just just you get for free, regardless of the, the rest of the curve, you kind of get it bumped up. So it, it seems to me that it being bumped up would, 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 would lead you to say things like, um, you know, you're still below the, you still haven't paid off your debt if you have two years of great life, uh, which that seems to me to be the, at least for me, a little counterintuitive about the, the way to do that. Well, now, look, remember, once you've got a person, if you're, if you're only comparing persons who exist, this stuff makes no difference. If you're, doing com if you're comparing the lengths of lives of persons, then how we evaluate the existence of those persons is irrelevant. We've got a person, we want to know how well her life is going, and we can just, just ask when she has a better life and when she has a less good one. And having a, a longer life is always better than having um, a shorter life. So the, 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 the questions arise only at the time when we haven't got a person. When we're getting a person, but we haven't, haven't got one. Now... Your case of suppose that there isn't actually any possibility of having a person. What should we think about that? Should we be pleased that the creatures that we have, the organisms that we have, live a longer time rather than a shorter time? Um, uh, should we eat I mutton or lamb? <laughs> 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 yes. Um, we, sh we should eat lamb. Should we eat mutton or lamb? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then do you measure it in length of the total expected lifetime or yeah. something absolute? Because I mean, and some microbe would only live for a few seconds, perhaps. Oh, yeah, of course. This is only about people. I'm not telling you the value of microbes. But, but and look, I, I don't know how long it takes to create a microbe. It probably is quicker than creating a person, I would think. Um, so maybe this whole thing has to be scaled down for the microbes. But no, there isn't a question of an expected lifetime. I'm just looking at the actual value of the lives that people have. And this is how you evaluate those lives. Um, if you want to know how to evaluate an expected life, you take the expectation. Uh, of those things, so it's, no, it's not a question of expected. So, so we have a yeah. we have a line. So there's your you 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 <coughs> at the moment. So if anyone else, so uh, okay, yes, okay. So you, I think you were next. That's why you don't work on this stuff at all. So I wondered what your, your response was to Jeff's thought, which says, well, let's just contrast um, better than and something like better for or interesting. And then in your transitivity problem, you can say the right-hand column is about interest, strength of the interest of a person at a particular time in a future life. And the left-hand column is about impersonal better than, and then the transitivity problem gets solved. And then in your own view, and Jeff's view, the contrast between them, as I understand this, is that Jeff's view um, would discount weakly psychologically connected um, but uh, goods and bads at any point in the life. And then the intuition still seems on his side, because so you've got the person who's 30 years old, and you could kill them. So in one, in one case, the person strongly psychologically connected to their future, and the other person weakly, and we want to work out how bad it is for the person to die at that point. And it seems like psychological connectedness still matters then when the person's a full person, and your view wouldn't yield that intuitive Verdict. So assuming that he can solve the transitivity problem, it looks like his view is preferable. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's two things. Uh, and the first is something I, I did want to say when, when Jeff spoke. I've been interpreting his, um, uh, what he says as a view about goodness. Mm -hmm. And he does actually talk about the badness of death and things like that. So he does use the language of goodness and badness. So I assume that what we were thinking about was the actual value of extending lives or cutting, cutting lives short. I said that other considerations may go into whether we ought to extend lives or cut lives short. There may be considerations that don't depend on the values. In fact, we know there are, and Jeff points this out. So if we were thinking about killing, for example, then that would raise 
special issues which are beyond any issues about the badness of the, of the death that results from the killing. Now, I must say, I did think that in the account that we were talking about, that it was intended to be an account of goodness, not an account of something other than goodness which determines what we ought to do. If it, if it wasn't, then the complaint about the intransitivity doesn't, doesn't count. You, know, you can have deontic theories which have, which have an intransitive structure. It can be that if you had a choice between A and B, you ought to do A, and if you had a choice between B and C, you ought to do B, and if you had a choice between C and A, you ought to do C, and so long as you don't claim that A is better than B and B is better than C and C is better than A, you're in the clear. That's not an objection. So this only is an objection if this is understood as a theory of goodness. So this is, this is maybe the only point that Jeff needs to uh, recognise. He shouldn't call it a theory of goodness if he does. We have good and good for. Oh, no, well, I, no, 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 good for also has to be trusted. Um, so I don't, no, I don't think it's that. Um, I think that, I think that what, what, perhaps he could, I'll say what he could say. <laughs> so he could think that what determines what you ought to do is in some way directly determined by the interests of the people that there are about. You know, it might, could be like voting, for example. What determines you as a democratic official in what you ought to do is directly determined by the preferences of the people that there are uh, around about. There's no need to claim that those preferences determine goodness. Similarly, there's no need to claim that interests somehow or other aggregate into the goodness of a situation. And that you can certainly do, but if you think that the interests of a person aggregate into the goodness for that person, then that'd be a better, that goodness for the person would better be a transitive thing. Well, it is quarter two now, and I'm sorry to those who couldn't ask their question, Alex, um, but it's a sign of a very stimulating, uh, friendly discussion that there are still uh, so many questions. But please join me in thanking both uh, Jeff and my partner.